Welcome to Fiscal One-on-One. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a fiscal topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on August 13, 2013 by Dwayne Ferguson, Senior Legislative Analyst for the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency. Dwayne interviewed Megan Tooker, Executive Director and Legal Counsel for the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Finance Disclosure Board about the responsibilities of the board and staff, the enforcement of campaign and ethics laws, and important current and upcoming issues for the board. Hello, I'm Dwayne Ferguson, Senior Analyst with the Fiscal Division of the Legislative Services Agency. I'm here today with Megan Tooker, Executive Director and Legal Counsel for the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Finance Disclosure Board. We're going to learn something about the Ethics Board today. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Why don't we get started by telling us what it is that the board does? Sure. Well, we have two separate and distinct roles in state government. The first is that we are responsible for overseeing and enforcing the executive branch ethics, and that's primarily in Chapter 68B of the code. It has to do with government ethics and lobbying. And then we're also responsible for enforcing the campaign finance laws of the state as it pertains to any candidate that runs for legislative or statewide office all the way down to the smallest elected position in city government or any subdivision thereof such as a school board. Even the school board? Yep, school board. If a dog catcher is uh, an elected position we would um, oversee the campaign finance rules for that position. How many board members are there? We have six board members and they are appointed to six-year terms. They serve staggered terms. They are eligible to be reappointed as many times as the governors of Iowa wish to do so, and by statute they need to be bipartisan and gender-balanced, the board does. And currently we have three Republicans, two Democrats, and an independent on our board. Are there any other requirements be no, a board member? no, no. I think just to have an interest in what we do and obviously to fit the criteria of the gender and political balance of the board. I always tell people by statute we're required to be bipartisan, but we really act in a nonpartisan way. I'm very proud to say that our board, I've never seen in the two and a half years I've been here, a board member act either partially towards his or her party or against the opposing party. We really mm-hmm. don't take politics into account. With the laws that we enforce, for the most part it's pretty black and white. You have to file your campaign disclosure reports by the due dates. You have to disclose certain information. Mm-hmm. There's certain rules about how you can spend your campaign money and so it really doesn't matter if you have an R or D next to your name. Uh, those rules apply to everybody and we proudly administer those in a nonpartisan fashion. How often does the board meet? Kind of meet as needed, typically about three or four times a year. And then we might have um, a telephonic meeting occasionally if something comes up that needs to be addressed quickly. Okay. What kinds of topics do they deal with when they meet? Sure. We have a few things. Typically we'll have some complaints that have been filed with the board so they will consider the complaints. We always have requests for the waiver of civil penalties. Our rules 
require us to issue automatic civil penalties on late filed reports and unfortunately we get quite a few of those and committees have 30 days to request a waiver or reduction of those penalties so we always have a little list of those that need to be resolved. We also issue a few advisory opinions typically at every meeting and then also we might deal with some rule changes and that sort of thing and then anything else the board wants to deal with. The board's really here to set kind of broad parameters for what it is the staff does on a day-to-day -day basis. So we might talk to them and ask them for clarifications on certain issues as far as how to in interpret a rule or the staff can seek advisory opinions just like anybody else and we do as far as mm -hmm. looking for some guidance from the board. Okay, you mentioned the staff. How many staff work here? There's myself and then I have an assistant, Sharon Wright. I think many of the legislators would know her. She's been with us for about 15 years. And then we have three auditors whose primary functions are to audit and review the campaign disclosure reports that are filed with our office. That's basically what they do? Yep. Day in and day out. You say they're auditing. What's their background to be auditors? To be an auditor, you need to have a business degree, so either in accounting auditing, business administration, that sort of thing. I think Cole right now has an MBA, the other two have business degrees. To be an auditor is a difficult position with our board because you can't just be a bean county. You have to be good with people. They talk to our committees every day and they're kind of at the forefront for making sure our committees are following the campaign finance laws of the state of Iowa. So they spend a lot of time answering questions, working with committees, letting them know if they did violate the law, how to fix it. So for example, if a committee took a campaign contribution from a corporation, our auditors are going to be the ones that would call the committee, let them know of the mistake, and, and explain to them how they can go about correcting that. When the reports come in, what happens with those? Fortunately, almost all of our reports are now being filed electronically. It's mandated by law that nearly all campaign finance reports are to be filed electronically, except for city and county candidates whose campaign activity is $2,000 or less in a calendar year. That's the only category that can still file by paper. So most of those are coming in with our electronic filing system. And during a reporting period, we're busy making sure that our committees are filing, following up with committees that haven't filed, making sure they get their reports in, and then we start auditing them as quickly as possible. Are these available to the public? Yes, they're available to the public within an hour of when they're filed on our website. Well, that's fast. Yeah. So how would I go about finding my senator's filing? On our website, you can click on the left-hand side, there's a button called View Campaign Reports, and you can click on that, and then it will show you different categories, and you would click on statewide and legislative candidates, and then you would find your senator's name and click on it, and you can go through and see his or her filings from the past decade or so. What do they put on those? Basically, our candidates and our PACs have to disclose all the money that they bring in and where they got that money and then how they spent the money. Oh, okay. So basically their report should reflect their bank accounts, hopefully. 
um, mm. their bank statements. And the reports, in addition to showing how they're spending their money, they also need to provide some details. So, for example, if you purchase something at Walmart, you also have to provide an explanation that you bought maybe campaign sign-making material or parade candy or what have you. So, mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that when our auditors call committees, a lot of times people get nervous when the ethics board calls them. They kind of think it's like the IRS auditing their tax returns. And I tell people that just because we question something doesn't mean you did something wrong. A lot of times it's just we're just looking for some clarification. So maybe there just isn't enough information on the report for us to know whether they complied with Iowa law or not, so we're just asking them to provide an explanation. I always tell people that people make mistakes on their reports, people make mistakes in how they spend their money, and as long as you are responsive to our staff request, work with us if something needs to be corrected, and then we also hope that you learn from your mistakes so that you don't mm -hmm. keep making the same mistake over and over again. But if you do those two things, you're going to be fine with us. We never want to be a barrier to candidates running for office. We don't want to dissuade anyone from running mm -hmm. for office. And we deal with, we have about 1,400 committees. We have a lot of committees that are city and county candidates that don't have any paid staff, that may have never run for office or thought about running for office, know nothing about campaign finance laws. And we appreciate that, and we understand that, and we want to make the process as painless as possible mm -hmm. and really hold ourselves out as a resource for them and encourage people to call us as often as possible. And just so I understand, you've been mentioning committees several mm -hmm. times. You mean these are the committees that a candidate forms or the committees that right, yeah, be doing I, their work? Yeah, that's a technical term that we use. In Iowa, if you spend or raise more than $750 in a calendar year, either as a candidate or as an organization or individual supporting candidates or opposing candidates, you have to create a committee with us. So if you're a candidate, you create a candidate committee with us if you go over that $750 threshold. And then a group of individuals wanting to support or oppose candidates, then you have to create a pack with us. Oh, now, okay. if you're just an individual that's writing checks to candidates, there's no additional filing. But if you're running a campaign mm -hmm. in favor against several candidates, then you okay. would need to create a PAC. Sounds like the auditors have quite a challenging, wide-ranging set of responsibilities there. They do. Uh, and our auditors, I'm very proud of them. They do very well, and they deal with a lot of different people from different walks of life. And some people are more sophisticated than others. Some people are more accepting of regulation than others. I mean, they feel some resistance sometimes with uh, people, but they always handle things in a professional manner and typically can end a conversation much better than maybe when it started. As you can imagine, if someone gets a penalty notice for a late filed report and they mm -hmm. run for office for the first time, we'll get a call that people get really annoyed by that and we explain that we're not picking on them. We got to treat everybody the same and our rules require us to assess a penalty in that situation. Mm -hmm. In your role, you're the executive director and legal counsel, so what do you do as legal counsel for the board? Well, as the board's legal counsel, my role is to advise them on the statutes that we have jurisdiction over, and I advise them about how they should handle complaints, for example, whether I believe in my legal opinion that the subject of the complainant 
has violated Iowa law that we have jurisdiction over. I also provide them advice on things like our advisory opinions and how to interpret a provision of the law that might be a little gray and to issue an advisory opinion. And then I also spend quite a bit of time just talking to people that are subject to our jurisdiction and giving either my informal opinion on a matter or encouraging them to ask for an advisory opinion so they can get a formal opinion from the board. For example, we get lots of calls from directors and other people in state agencies that have questions about conflicts of interest, gift law, application, that sort of thing, and wanting to make sure that they're complying with the ethics and lobbying chapter. And similarly, I get a lot of calls from committees asking about questions about how Iowa law applies to a given situation. You mentioned gifts and executive directors calling. What's that all about? The gift law is probably the best known statute in Chapter 68B. Most people think of the gift law as the $3 rule, but the gift law is actually a little more complicated than that. It says that government officials and employees may not accept a gift from a restricted donor unless one of the 19 exceptions to the gift law applies. And the $3 rule is just one of 19 exceptions. And along that same vein, the gift law, if an official or employee cannot accept a gift, neither can their spouse or dependent children. So there's lots of exceptions to the gift law. Legislators, I'm sure, are familiar with the session function exception, and that provides that if a restricted donor has a function during session and all members of the legislature are invited to attend, then you can accept refreshments as well as entertainment that's provided at that mm -hmm. function. So that's just one. Another common exception is the speaking engagement exception. If you're asked to speak or serve on a panel at a meeting and a restricted donor in that case can provide your travel and food and lodging uh, mm -hmm. in return for that. So anyway, I get a lot of calls about the gift law. Another issue is people don't always appreciate that it only prohibits gifts from restricted donors. So if someone isn't a restricted donor, you can accept a gift from them. What is a restricted donor? A restricted donor is a client of a lobbyist or a lobbyist. It can be an individual or entity that's doing business or seeking to do business with a state agency. It can also be uh, someone who will be affected substantially, someone who could be affected financially by the performance or non-performance of an official or employee's duties in a way that's greater than the effect on the public generally or a substantial class of people. And finally, it can also be um, someone that has a matter before a regulatory agency. It's, uh, that person is a restricted donor to the people that basically have discretionary authority over that regulatory matter. Does this come up very often? Because I know I saw in the paper the education director had an issue with travel to a meeting, I believe it was. But do you get lots of these questions? Or? Sure, I sure do. The gift law is probably the most common question I get. Like I said, a lot of people immediately look at whether the gift is permissible, but it's really a two-step analysis. You first have to decide whether Mm -hmm. the gift giver is a restricted donor and if the answer is no then you don't have to worry about whether one of the 19 exceptions applies because you don't have to worry about that. So I get a fair number of questions and after we had a complaint against Dr. Glass it was high profile and our board ultimately dismissed that complaint but after that I think people were a little more nervous about accepting mm -hmm. 
-hmm. certain gifts and were calling me more frequently just to make sure that they were complying with Iowa law. Sure. And that's what we're here for. It's funny, I get calls and so many of them start with, I hate to bother you with this, but I have a question. And I always tell people, that's my job, that's what I'm here for. So you never have to apologize for mm -hmm. asking me that question about one of our statutes. We've been talking about the ethics and we talked about some about the campaign laws. What kind of enforcement authority does the board have? Under the board's Chapter 68B, we have a list of things that we can do as far as sanctions. Mm -hmm. The most common one is remedial action. So, for example, if you took a corporate contribution for your campaign committee, you can't do mm -hmm. that returning it. But the board also can issue reprimands, admonishments. They can issue civil penalties up to $2,000 per violation. And then a common question I get is whether the board has the authority to remove anyone from office or remove anybody from their employment with state government. We do not have that authority. Mm -hmm. The most we could do is recommend to the authority that appoints someone or in the case of an executive branch employee, the most we could do is recommend their suspension or their termination mm -hmm. of employment. Well, that's still significant. <laughs> right. You mentioned complaints earlier on, too, about uh, I assume you're getting complaints from public or other candidates or something. What kinds of complaints does the board receive, or do you receive? Well, we receive quite a few complaints about campaign finance issues, and that's because all those reports are public records. And what happens is either a member of the public or a candidate's opponent reviews a particular report before our auditors get the chance to and they'll see something they believe in as an issue and they'll file a complaint and then we'll deal with that and I work very hard to make sure that we treat an issue that is brought to our attention by way of a complaint the same way as we would deal with it if we came across that issue in a routine audit. I don't want to mm. punish people more severely because one of their opponents filed a complaint. Right. So that's something I'm always constantly asking myself is how would we handle this if we just pick this up in an audit. So that's campaign finance issues that typically are from those reports. Sometimes we'll get a member of the public who will be looking at those reports and claim that either there was some contributions that weren't reported or some expenditures that weren't reported. So for example, they'll say, well, I know they had a fundraising event on such and such date and there's no contributions listed from that date or I saw there's hundreds of campaign signs throughout mm -hmm. the county and I don't see any of those on candidate X's report. So we'll handle those kind of complaints too. And then we also get a fair number of complaints about ethics issues, so gift law, conflicts of interest, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Probably our most popular statute that draws complaints is 68A.505 and that has to do with the prohibition on using government resources for political purposes. Mm -hmm. So people will question whether an elected official, usually at the city or county level, and whether they use government resources as part of their campaign. Sending out an email, for example, or using the copier to make handouts, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So we get a fair number of complaints about that as well. Talk about complaints and a number of things here. What are the important current and upcoming issues for the board? The thing that we spend a fair amount of time talking about in our world is independent expenditures. So after 
the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United mm -hmm. in 2010, corporations and other entities may spend independently of candidates to expressly advocate in favor or against candidates or ballot issues. So what we have is lots of questions about that. What does that mean to Iowa? How does that affect our campaign finance laws? Iowa was the first state to amend its statutes to comply with Citizens United. And we have a statute that has been the subject of a lawsuit since that statute was amended almost immediately thereafter and that litigation is still ongoing. One of the things that we look at as the board is what things are working with that independent expenditure statute, what things could be improved, what are other states doing mm -hmm. in the world of independent expenditures, are there things that we could be doing to increase transparency and that sort of thing. And we've been busy talking to legislators about that as well. Maybe I should explain what an independent expenditure is. Sometimes huh. people yes. don't always understand that. An independent expenditure is a communication that expressly advocates for or against a candidate or ballot issue and that the person making that expenditure spent more than $750 in the aggregate and they're doing so without prior approval or coordination with the candidate or ballot issue committee. So again, these are expenditures that are made independent of the candidates mm -hmm. and they can either support candidates or oppose candidates and uh, in increments of larger than $750. And then under those situations, the person making the independent expenditure has to file reports with us mm -hmm. detailing the expenditure. And then under certain circumstances, they have to disclose where they got their money, where they mm -hmm. got their source of funding. And that's where a lot of interest comes with independent expenditures. Typically, they're what are called C4s, 501C4s, that's a provision of the Internal Revenue Code that has to do with uh, nonprofit organizations. So C4s are, are nonprofit organizations whose primary purpose is not political speech, but they can do political speech. And as you can imagine, these groups get money from lots of different sources under lots of different scenarios. Some of it are dues, mm -hmm. some of it are direct fundraising appeals, and they are required under Iowa law to disclose their source of funding if it's given, and the statute says, for the purpose of furthering the independent expenditure. <laughs> so we get lots of calls about that, as you can imagine. And now we have an Eighth Circuit decision that struck down parts of our statute so that's garnered even more questions about people wanting mm -hmm. to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and that we're following the Eighth Circuit's directive. And as I said before, the litigation's ongoing. Part of the case has gone back to the district court. The organization that filed suit is asking the Eighth Circuit to reconsider parts of the decision. So we continue to litigate that, those okay. issues. When that's being litigated, are you involved as an attorney in the courtroom? Not directly. The Attorney General's office in that case is representing us. I'm in contact more mm -hmm. as a client with the Attorney General's office and review their court filings and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, this has all been interesting. And to wrap it up, what's probably the most important thing that legislators could come away from from this discussion? I hope legislators appreciate that we have two very important roles in state government. Again, we're in charge of enforcing the ethics provisions as they apply to the executive branch, and then we're also 
enforcing all campaign finance laws from the highest government uh, position, which is the governor, all the way down to the smallest form of government at the local level. And we deal with a lot of different people. We are very busy and we have a very small staff. I think most people are surprised that our office is only five people and I hope that our staff could grow by one person in the next year or two just so that we can provide the best customer service possible to the people that are subject to our jurisdiction. One of the things that we're really working on right now is trying to do as much outreach as possible mm -hmm. because we find that one, people have a better experience with our office if we're communicating with them during their campaigns rather than after their campaigns and helping them correct errors. Mm -hmm. But if we can help them comply at the outset, they like us better. It makes our job easier. Their reports are cleaner and more accurate. And so we're trying to do more of that, but it's difficult to get all of our other work done and then also do candidate schools. And we'd like to do some webinars and we're working on different manuals and that sort of thing mm -hmm. to try to help people comply with Iowa law. The directive we get from our board is that Iowans, by and large, want to comply with the law. We always start with the presumption that the folks that are subject to our jurisdiction want to comply with the law. If they make a mistake, we don't assume that they did it intentionally. Now, sometimes we find out otherwise, but we always start with the presumption that any error was unintentional mm -hmm. and we want to correct those mistakes quickly. So we definitely could use some help with doing more of that outreach and more of that educational component so that people can uh, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to under Chapter 68A and 68B. Okay, great. Well, Megan, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about the Ethics Board. This has been informative. Well, thank great. you. Thank you.